welcome to the worship service at the Seventh-day Adventist Church in Hayward, California, a multicultural church in the San Francisco East Bay that worships on the Seventh-day Sabbath, Saturday. The ministry of the Word by Pastor Paul Penno is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to forgive sin and save from sin by his cross and ministry as priest in the heavenly sanctuary, the third angel's message in verity. Join us now as the service is in progress. I'd like to direct your thoughts this morning to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking about fathers, I read a very touching story about the sacrifice that a father made for his son. His son's name was Tom, and he had Down syndrome. And his father, Mr. Vanderwood, he was about 66 years of age. He had just come home from church, and he had been working out in the backyard, and his son was with him out there in the backyard, and uh, Joseph apparently had fallen through a piece of metal that covered a two-by-two-foot opening in a septic tank. And at some point, uh, the father jumped into the tank and submerged himself in sewage so he could push his son up from below and keep his son's head above the muck. And mother and the workman... Uh, tried to pull, they pulled the son out, but when the rescue workers arrived, they pulled both of them out, and Mr. Vanderwood, who had been in the tank for about 15 or 20 minutes, was unconscious, and they took him to the hospital, but efforts to revive him were unsuccessful, and he was pronounced dead at the hospital. The father sacrificed his life in order to save the life of his son. Wonderful instruction in a life of self-denial, isn't it? You know, Satan is becoming more astute at a propaganda campaign of besmirching the character of God. He has targeted the, uh, Jesus' favorite word, Father, for, his, uh, for the God of heaven. That's how... God has chosen to reveal himself as a family in heaven, a father and a son in the Holy Spirit. So Satan has targeted that word father to try to uh, muddy it up in people's thinking. And it's true that some fathers deserve the licking that they are getting for abandoning their wives and their children to fend off for themselves, and that leaves lasting scars. And furthermore, the father image has received other scars from uh, the celibate clergy in a certain church uh, taking advantage of their positions of power behind the altar. And then, of course, there's been the feminist movement that has done enough men bashing to deconstruct the patriarchal society. It has come to the point where even within the church's prayers, uh, you don't hear prayers to the father, but you hear prayers to the mother God. And mothers are viewed as nurturing and loving ones, and fathers are thought as distant and unapproachable and unemotional. And sometimes we human fathers have had earthly, human beings have had earthly fathers who left us confused and bewildered over the word father. 
But Jesus came to this earth with a mission to reveal to us the family of the Godhead. And there's a beautiful expression of that relation found in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27 that I'd have you contemplate for a moment. Matthew chapter 11 and verse 27. Jesus says, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. I see this as a, a marvelous instruction in a lesson of self-denial, and that is the highest wisdom, self-denial. Here you have everything delivered into the hands of Christ. And how does he use that? He uses it, that power to reveal the Father to men, which he himself remains while Jesus himself remains unknown. We speak of knowing Christ, but in knowing Christ, we learn only the character of God, the Father. In seeing Jesus, we see God. Jesus said to Philip, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. He emptied himself that the Father might appear. In all of the universe, no one knows the Son except the Father, and that was and is the sacrifice of Christ. Looking down upon fallen humanity, his heart was filled with love and pity. And he said to the Father, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. I'm going to show them who you are, Father. And so he was content, Jesus, to be despised and unknown, to be misunderstood. Jesus was content to be rejected without complaints upon his lips, knowing that his Father would be understood through him. When God the Father was confronted with a world that is in Adam that had sinned and rebelled against him, did the Father drop a big bomb upon the world and just eliminate it? No. He did what the unfallen universe thought was unthinkable, he frankly forgave them and granted the sinners a judicial verdict of acquittal. That's what the Father did for this world. And now the Father was free to treat sinners as though they had never sinned. And the name for this action is grace, God's grace. Romans 5, Romans 5 describes what happened in verse 15. God's act of grace... By the way, that act of grace is the cross. God's act of grace is out of all proportion to Adam's wrongdoing. For if the wrongdoing of that one man brought death upon so many, its effect is vastly exceeded by the grace of God, the cross, and the gift that came to so many by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought of the cross of Christ as the grace, the act of grace for you and for me? This marvelous gift of grace does not belittle the seriousness of sin that we have committed. The true dimension of the guilt of our sin is revealed in the murder of the Son of God on the cross of Calvary. What kind of sacrifice can balance that account of our guilt? 
Someone holy, someone who is innocent, must take our place and pay the price of guilt. This is a legal or judicial verdict of acquittal that Christ accomplished for us, for us and has given to us this gift. The Father so loved us that he gave us his only Son to die our second death. And all he asks from us is to believe what he has done. And the word believe means to express a heartfelt appreciation for what it cost him to save us. And that heart appreciation melts your stony heart and mine, and it changes us. And that is conversion. It is the new birth. It converts us. And so the Bible invites us to think of God, to think of his giving this act of grace to you and to me. And when we do, it is not to think of God as some merely infinite electronic-like intelligence that pervades the universe, but we are to think of him as somebody infinitely close and personal. This is how Jesus invited us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. To think of God in heaven as our Father in terms of close familial relationship. But there's a clever enemy that has arisen within the universe who has challenged him and challenged this whole concept of Father. And there are some very clever accusations and insinuations that Lucifer's rebellion has injected in the human thought and mind. These charges are often reflected in the hearts of sinful men. One of them is that God is basically selfish. Lucifer has injected that thought into the human heart. God is basically selfish. And in Psalm 50, verse 21, the Lord says, You have thought that I was altogether one like you, but I will reprove you. I will rebuke you. You thought I was selfish like you, but I will show you that I am the giving God, the one who has given you this gift. And Christ's uh, Great Controversy, page 502, echoes this accusation, making clarifying it. Ellen White says, Satan had accused God of seeking merely the exaltation of himself in requiring submission and obedience from his creatures and had declared that while the Creator exacted self-denial from all others, He Himself practiced no self-denial and made no sacrifice. Another accusation in Lucifer's rebellion that he's injected into human hearts is that God's law is unjust because it requires an obedience that is impossible to yield. Another accusation of Lucifer against the Father is the divine government is responsible for the rebellion. The divine government is responsible for this whole mess of sin and rebellion. Another accusation is self-denial is impossible and therefore not essential for the human family. Another one is that angels and men need only do what they think is right. They don't need the restraints of God's law. And we read in Great Controversy, page 499, that the rebel has reiterated his claim that angels needed no control but should be left to follow their own will, which would ever guide them aright. 
He denounced the divine statutes as a restriction of their liberty and declared that it was his purpose to secure the abolition of the law, that freed from this restraint the hosts of heaven might enter upon a more exalted and more glorious state of existence. Satan has continued with men the same policy which he pursued with the angels. Another accusation is that God's unjust restrictions have led to man's fall in Eden. Great Controversy 500. By the same misrepresentation of the character of God as he had practiced in heaven, Satan induced man to sin. And having succeeded thus far, he declared that God's unjust restrictions had led to man's fall as they had led to his own rebellion. Charges God with the whole rebellion of sin. Another one of the accusations of the evil one is that the Father and the Son were enemies of the angels, were enemies of human beings. Lucifer is our friend. That's one of the accusations. And another one is, the Father is angry with sinners. This is one of the big ones that still lodges itself in the minds of people to this very day, that God is angry with sinners, and his wrath would just wipe them out, that Jesus offered himself up for the target of God's wrath on the cross in order to appease him, to calm him down, and that the atonement is viewed as some kind of an inter-Godhead squabble, legal matter between the Father and the Son, whereby he turn, Jesus turns away God's wrath from sinners. You know, that's the pagan concept of the atonement introduced into Christianity, because the sacrifices of the heathens were always to placate the wrath of the angered gods. It was quite common among the pagans in the Middle East, as well as North, Central, and South America, where human sacrifices were used to appease the gods. And many of us are familiar with their pyramids and their altars. Christ died to reconcile the Father unto us. It's the pagan idea of sacrifice applied to Christianity. God, they think, is angry. He must pour forth his wrath upon someone. If upon man, it would eternally damn him as he deserved. But this would interfere with God's plan and purpose in creating the world. So this must not be. And yet God must not be cheated out of his vengeance. For this reason, he pours it forth upon Christ, that man may go free. So when Christ died, he was slain really by the wrath and the anger of the Father. Well, this is paganism. The true idea of the atonement makes God and Christ equal in their love and one in their purpose of saving humanity. The life of Christ was not the price paid to the Father for our pardon, but that life was the price which the Father paid to you and to me to reconcile our hearts that were angry with him. Amen. And by the way, just to, whenever you read about the wrath of God against sinners, that's the other side of God's love. And think of God as a husband 
who's dealing with an unfaithful wife. And what's the first reaction that a husband has when he discovers his wife has been unfaithful? It's jealousy, isn't it? And what is jealousy? It's motivated by God's love, or by the husband's love for the spouse to bring her back to himself. And so God's wrath is his jealousy for his bride who has been unfaithful to him. So we read this in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 10. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sacrifice for our sins. He sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. He paid it to us to win our hearts. Romans 3.25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation or a sacrifice through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the removal of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. It says, for who, whom God hath set forth to be a sacrifice through faith in his blood. When you see the cross and appreciate what it costs the dear Son of God to die for you, that appreciation is faith in his blood, faith in that love. Divine love motivates faith. We read in Romans 5, verse 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from, the wrath, from wrath through him. Whose wrath is that? That's our wrath. We're the ones that are angry with God. But seeing this great love that God commendeth toward us in Christ Jesus reconciles our old enemy hearts that are in wrath against God. And we're saved from it, delivered from it. I'm thankful that God has found a remedy to completely reconcile the human heart to himself. It's in the cross and in the love of God. It says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son... Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. No way does this great gift of love uh, denigrate um, following Jesus in a lifelong discipleship. In fact, it's the only way to motivate a lifelong reconciliation of discipleship with him. And Mrs. White supported this view that man was reconciled to God by the death of Christ and not God reconciled to man. The Father loved us. She says in Steps to Christ, page 15, but this great sacrifice was not made in order to create in the Father's heart a love for man, not to make him willing to save. No, no, the Father loves us, not because of the great propitiation, the great sacrifice, but he provided the propitiation because he loves us. That's the Christian view, the true view of it, not the pagan view. Steps to Christ, page 15. Read it right there. And that's what John 3.16 teaches. It means to say, God so loved the world. That is every individual, correct? Every personal sinner in the world, God loves, God so loved the world that he gave his only, and the word there, begotten son for us, 
which means that he loved us before he loved his son. In some mysterious way, he was willing to give his son because he loved us. That whosoever believeth in him should not go on perishing within himself, but should have eternal life, not an extension of our presently, present worldly and often painful existence, but the kind of life that Jesus has in his resurrection life. You know, we've all heard about how sly and cunning and evil Satan is. Have you known how he has tried to suck the life out of one of the greatest verses in the Bible? John 3.16, however, has very dynamite truth in it to save every sinner. And if its meaning is devalued, its effect on the human heart is weakened. What kind of a sacrifice did the Father make when he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son? And there is a a sort of time-honored doctrine often labeled as orthodox that denies that God ever had a son before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That he became a father only when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The idea is that God simply agreed for a twin or a fellow committee member to come to earth and be sacrificed. Gracious, yes. Gracious even, but a sacrifice? But when when it comes to thinking about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead is so great that my brain is like a little pea trying to understand it. But God is saying, trying to say something to us, according to John 3.16, that Christ was always the Son of God, even from all eternity, John chapter 1 and verse 1 reads, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then verse 14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. There was never a time in eternity when the Son of God was not. He always was. Now, the Muslims say that we teach that God had a wife of some sorts. No, God has tried to tell us something more beyond words here. Christ was not begotten as we humans beget children. The word in the Bible does not mean that, the word only begotten Son. It means only beloved one, only beloved one. The father's love for his son was the infinite antitype of our human love for a child. And God has permitted us, unworthy human beings as we are, to have the experience of parenthood in order that we might understand just a trifle the heart-rending agony in the infinite father's heart when it came time for him to give his only begotten son to this world. The sacrifice was made in eternity, and it was and is an infinite sacrifice. John 3.16 does make sense, and a pea-sized brain and heart like mine can at least begin to appreciate it. Literally, it seems to be the only, begotten means the only one, the solitary one. You also have this expression in Psalm 25 and verse 16, 
it presents a use of it that has no reference to an only child. It says, turn thee unto me, for I am lonely and afflicted. I am solitary and afflicted. And so that's what the word in the Hebrew means, solitary and lonely. And its use in Genesis 22, 2 and 14 is most interesting. And he said, take now thy son, and this is Abraham, God speaking to Abraham, take now thine son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. Thine only son, thy solitary son, your lonely son. Verse 16, I swore, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, thy solitary son, thy lonely son. So the father's love for the world is illustrated in Abraham's love for his only son who represents the only begotten son, that was given to the world. And I believe that what happened in the Abraham-Isaac experience is the basis for John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And you have a type of it with Abraham who gave his solitary son. He made the decision to sacrifice his son on the altar. John doubtless saw in John Genesis 22 that term only needed to be applied to Christ. However, solitary has no connotation of being begotten. By implication, its use in Genesis 22 could mean only begotten. And uh, this may be the reason why in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word begotten is used. John used only begotten of Christ because of the figure of Isaac in John chapter 22 but certainly not with any idea of Christ being brought into existence at any time as a child is begotten of its father. As Isaac was the only darling in the eyes of his father, so Christ was the only darling in the eyes of his heavenly father. It was the most precious gift that he could give to the world. And so John seeks to emphasize the father's love for a sinful world. John 1.14 presents begotten without the, the article, the, we beheld his glory, the glory of an only begotten from a father. A child cannot create his father, but the way that the Bible is speaking, the child that is you and I can formulate a vision of what father should mean, and that is included in the command to believe. And the Holy Spirit is personally present with every individual to make this a thrilling experience that you share with the Father in private. Now, I don't know what your experience has been with fathers. Maybe you've had a miserable experience with fathers. Maybe you've had a spouse that was a miserable father. I praise the Lord if the father in your experience has been a good one. Sometimes it's almost rare these days. But part of believing the good news of the gospel is to heal us of our bad views of earthly fathers so that we have a right view of our Heavenly Father, a right understanding of Him. And so long as we persist in this idea that God is angry with sinners, we will continue to perpetuate this evil view that we have of fathers on this earth, and there will be no healing. The gospel seeks to revision our understanding 
of who our Father is. You say, well, this is impractical. Uh, this isn't scratching me where I'm itching. Let me tell you, this is what people are thinking out there in the pew. This is extremely practical. And I need that healing, and so do you. You may say, well, it's impossible. I've gone too far in my understanding of an image of a father. Well, I'll tell you, the, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. He can heal our thought patterns. And by the way, that's where the problem of sin lies, in the way we think. In the way we think. Don't tell me that doctrine isn't important. The way we think is very important in, how, in terms of how we live and the power of the, that the gospel brings into our daily experience. Now, this is a true story. It dates back to the British rule in India. Uh, the Pambam Bridge situated there in Tamil, India. And at the entrance of this bridge, you can see a picture of a weeping man holding some body parts close to his chest. And this bridge was built during the British rule in India, and it was constructed in such a way that the center portion of that bridge could be lifted with the help of huge wheels so that ships could easily pass under the bridge. And on the bridge, there was a road deck, and there were railroad tracks for trains and also the road deck for vehicles to pass over it. A, middle, a middle-aged man was appointed to roll the wheels up and down. It was a sort of a drawbridge to go up and down when ships would need to pass through. Once he saw a train that was slowly approaching, and while he was pulling back the bridge after a ship had quietly passed beneath, he had to pull back quickly or else there would have been a very fatal accident as this train was loaded with passengers and it needed to cross the bridge. It was oncoming. So he's seeking to get the tracks back into place and position in time. And at that moment, his nine-year-old son came from home with a lunch for him to eat. And when he saw his father struggling with the wheels, he, kept, he put the lunchbox down and he started helping his father to roll the wheels to put the bridge back in place. But suddenly, the son's finger got caught inside the wheel and he started crying out. And at this time, if the father tried to save his son, the bridge could not be put back in place on time for the oncoming train. He had no other option but to ignore his son's cry. And with all his strength, he kept on rolling the wheels to put the bridge down. And as the wheels rolled on, his son slowly started slipping away into the huge machinery. Tears rolled down his father's cheek, but he ignored his son's cry. If he had tried to save him, the train would surely fall into the sea with the people in it. Slowly, the boy's whole body fell into the machine, and his father could hear his bones breaking one by one, until with a loud sound, his head cracked, and the train with thousands of passengers slowly rolled on the rails without knowing even what had happened there. Though this man performed his duty honestly, he lost his only dear son. And with extreme lamentation, he pulled out his son's body parts from the machine and held it close to his chest and cried bitterly. And the British government honored him greatly. And in memory of this incident, they placed 
that picture of the father holding the son's part, body parts at the entrance is a memorial at that bridge. The cross is a memorial of the Father's gift of love and giving to you and me the Son. And if that doesn't melt your heart, nothing will. Join us again next time for the Word of God which will feed the soul. I am committed to bring you the fullness of the gospel as Jesus has revealed it to us in order to prepare a people for his soon coming.